This All is right. my legal uh, allowance that if one of them kill me in the future, I have allowed it police. Yep. Be nice to them. And then Peter and I can murder you and then start our true crime podcast. About who murdered me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about (laughs) inexpensive, (laughs) common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Carmine Apiece impersonator, Jeremy Ruggles. What were those words you said? Didn't you write this one, or did Peter write it? Carmine Apiece? Peter, did you write this? He's a drummer. Yeah, he's a drummer from what, Vanilla Fudge? Oh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. All right. And what do I do? I impersonate him? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true. Okay, cool. And, of course, we're also joined by Needle Changer for DJ Lethal, Peter Cook. That's the signal? Is that the secret signal for he needs a new needle? You got it all figured out now? That sounds like you're just making work for yourself. Throw your hands up. Throw your hands up. Um, Throw your hands up. Okay. Well, should we listen to a record? Sure. Yeah. Did you bring a record, Peter? Not me. Did you bring a record, Jeremy? Not me. Well, all I've got is this copy of Isaac Hayes' Joy from 1973 on Enterprise Records. You want to listen to that? Yeah, that'll do. Okay. Well, I thought we'd just drop the needle on the first track. Yeah, I got to change it real quick. I got to change it. You got to change it up? Yep. For DJ Lethal. All right. This is the title track from Joy. By Isaac Case.
If I only were to know vaguely about Isaac Hayes, you know, about how much you know, being somewhat tuned into pop culture the last 25, 30 years, I would still probably be able to recognize that that was a song of his within the first minute and a half. Okay, cool. I, I knew you were at least a moderate Isaac Hayes fan. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I think for people in the know, he has a very distinctive sound, but I get this feeling like majority of younger people these days just really don't even know him as much for his music, which I think is a tragedy. Jeremy, how familiar are you with Isaac Hayes? I am fairly familiar. I believe I've got, like, by the time I get to Phoenix, his cover or his album that has that cover on it. Uh, that's Hot Buttered Soul. Hot Buttered Soul yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the big famous one. Yeah, yeah I've yeah, got totally. that. I think I've got one or two others in there, too, though. I don't have Black Moses. I want that one, but... Black Moses is tight. Yeah. It's so tight. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly familiar. Sure. Within, like, I'd say, oh, like, two-tenths of a second of hearing his voice. I know it's Isaac Hayes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Either Isaac Hayes or Barry White. No, I, I know it's Definitely Isaac, no Isaac, like, yeah. immediately. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, so many people I've talked to over the years, if they know Isaac Hayes, they're most likely to know him from South Park. And then if you're lucky, they know that, you know, he did the Shaft soundtrack or maybe they know about Hot Buttered Soul. But when you really look at what this guy has done, he is easily one of the most important musicians of all time and one of the most important songwriters of all time. And For stacks, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I just think it's unfortunate that his weird activity later on in life has largely overshadowed his greatness, it seems like. Which, I gotta say, seems to happen way more frequently to older black artists than it does older white artists, from what I've seen. There's a lot more press time for white musicians to really explore their their whole uh, image as an artist, as a multifaceted artist. Whereas, oftentimes, black artists are kind of presented as one-dimensional. And especially if they made some mistakes later in life, that's all you're going to hear about afterwards. Well, yeah, if you think of like Rick James, I would say most people know him from the Chappelle Show sketch more exactly. than his music. Exactly. And then he was like a civil rights leader at the time in music. He was a big deal. And I mean, if, yeah, if he you're was gonna, a ripper. Yeah, exactly. And the, the music was incredible. And obviously a, you know, deeply flawed individual. And, you know, it seems Isaac Hayes was in a way himself and, you know, George Clinton, James Brown, none of these were perfect people, but they were, they were very important and far from one dimensional people. And that's what this podcast does trying to shed some light on the forgotten history of great artists. Can I throw out a, I don't even know if this is a controversial opinion, Okay, but I got to say I'm like a hundred percent stacks over Motown. I was like that so much when I first started getting into soul music. Oh, I'm not deep enough in. <laughs> I see. Well, you know, a lot of Motown was made with the explicit intention of having crossover appeal to white audiences. And, there was less of a push for that with Stax, which is also why Stax never made as much money as Motown did. Yeah, but the music was so much cooler. The music was really cool. I mean, they had some duds too, 
you know, here and there. But yeah. the early days of stacks were untouchable. And one of the biggest reasons why those early days of stacks were untouchable was because of Isaac Hayes. Isaac Hayes. Exactly. Isaac Hayes, who we'll just touch on some of his early history briefly, childhood musical prodigy, dropped out of high school, but his teacher still like convinced him to finish high school so that he could get a full ride scholarship for music to college because he just like could play any instrument he picked up. Brilliant songwriter, brilliant musician, total natural from a very young age. When he came of age, grew up, moved out of the South or, you know, moved out of the the rural deep South to the city of Memphis. He became one of the staff writers and house musicians for Stax records and wrote a huge chunk of the early Stax hits. Almost all Sam and Dave material was co-written by Isaac Hayes, a lot of Booker T and the MGs, Johnny Taylor, Rufus Thomas, Carla Thomas. He wrote some Otis Redding songs. Yeah, I was going to say, I know he did some of the Otis stuff. Yeah. He has almost 2,000 songwriting credits on Discogs, which that also counts like anyone that's covered his songs, et cetera, et cetera. But like, He's had a tremendous impact on the world of music. So much of the songs he wrote in the early days were hits. And then he completely changed the course of black music in the 60s. He's often credited along with Barry White as being basically the two originators of the disco sound. They were two of the first guys to move out of that three-minute pop song format in like, let's put a bunch of strings on there. Let's do 10-plus-minute songs. Let's you know, not be afraid of having slower, very like sexual songs as opposed to like strictly party jammers. Which that first song we listened to goes on for about 16 minutes, right? Yep. Yep. (laughs) When I was previewing this, I, you know, I was grooving with it for about five minutes. I was making dinner. And then after a while, I realized that it had definitely been over 10 minutes since I started listening to the track (laughs) and it was showing no signs of stopping i started to wonder if he was isaac hayes was like you know like estimating the average time of copulation and trying to make tracks to that length (laughs) i mean that had to be a factor plus like track two on here is just literally the sounds of him getting his fuck on so (laughs) yeah that made me a little uncomfortable but you know he's he's doing his thing So I watched a handful of interviews with him over the years, and he said that one of the most consistent things he gets from fans or, you know, used to, he has passed away, unfortunately, but one of the most consistent feedback he would get at shows is people tell him like, man, I, you know, all my kids are because of you. Like he said specifically, there was a guy that approached him at a show with, that was there with his family and he just points at all of his kids. He's like, this is all your fault. (laughs) Has has anyone ever done like a, a study of what the population of the world was before Isaac Hayes started recording and when he finished and seeing how much it increased in that time. Uh, it, you know, he had to have been affecting those stats in some way for sure. <laughs> There's a bit of a bump. <laughs> I mean, there was a bit of a bump just off his own personal activity. Let's be real. He had like 18 kids that he knew of. Yeah. Oh man. Did he have two? You said 16 before we started. Has he had two since then? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's that we know of. There's a, there's a lot of claims. <laughs> There's a lot of uh, DNA test results that we're waiting for. I'm, uh, I'm getting in 21 now. We're up to 20. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, that was when I first, before I'd actually like really listened to Isaac Hayes, I had this impression of him already in like his deep voice and that he makes like sexual music. 
but when you actually listen to it, the that like length of the grooves and the kind of experimental ornate nature of his music is really slept on and really mm-hmm. like not acknowledged. Definitely. Yeah. And it was incredibly important. Like we talked about, there was very few people that were doing these long form explorations before him. We've obviously all heard countless music that is in some way influenced by this. And it doesn't seem that weird to hear 10 minute songs, but for the audience he was making music for, it was revolutionary and it was extremely successful for him. And also if you listen to the instrumentation on here, these are all like top of their game players. These are literally just like the best studio musicians in the city of Memphis are all on this record. Yeah. Who's on this record? Cause I, online I found it difficult to find the names. They're basically house musicians associated with mainly stacks and high records, which were the two big Southern labels. High records is most notable for doing all the early Al green stuff. So a lot of these players were on Al Green records, you know, they were on OV Wright records, a lot of Isaac Hayes, a lot of Stax related stuff, all the, all the great Southern soul players. If you look at their individual credits on Discogs and stuff, it's, it's just a who's who of great Southern recordings. Plus, you know, people, some of them worked with Dusty Springfield during her Memphis phase, et cetera, et cetera. But these are the, just the best of the best. On the album itself, it just says, movement horns and memphis strings for accompaniment so right so a few years before this he put out an album called isaac hayes movement and then his backing band became known as the isaac hayes movement from that point forward oh yep so these are a lot of people that have been working with isaac for years during an extremely prolific time in his life this is his eighth record in the course of six years but most of it was done over the course of four years, all but one record. Wow. So like this guy was putting in work. And if you ever watch any interviews of him or other people talking about his songwriting process in the stacks days, it was just crazy. The amount of stuff they were pumping out. I have this image in my head that for professional songwriters, they're probably mostly working at home, perfecting these songs, get them the way they want it. And then they present these, written songs to the artists that seem like probably the norm to you guys. I don't know. And Peter, you have any insight on that? <laughs> oh, I great. I, you caught me zoning out. <laughs> I know pop songs nowadays are written by like teams of people, but that's yeah. a more modern development. I don't know how it went back then. Honestly, it could be, not abnormal at all. But anyways, Isaac Hayes, his process was he had a songwriting partner named David Porter, and they would just write these songs with the artists in the studio. They would book the studio time with an artist, show up, and then just start writing the material. Like, they wouldn't even walk in with anything, which just uh, seems crazy impressive to me. Yeah, I mean, we talked about the Killing Me Softly song that the artist, the original artist, uh, not it was not Roberta Flack, you know, but she had pitched some ideas to a songwriting team, and then they wrote the song from there. I it, it might have been a not uncommon process back when there was more of a music industry when there were a lot sure. of different levels of that process. You just go into work and start writing and recording every day. That's just what you do, I guess. I don't know if the Brill Building did that. Or if they were just writing isolated and then giving them to whatever artist seemed best suited. 
That was the impression I got of the Brill Building, and that was like the one thing I was thinking of. Is you just heard of people just writing songs and then sending them to a team for approval, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was just cranking them out. Uh, let's hear. Let's hear another song. How about that? One of you has to explain what the Brill Building is, though. I don't um, know what that should. is. Our right. listeners don't know. <laughs> Peter, go some ahead. of them probably know, but let's explain what the Brill Building was. Yeah. Well, I know that's where Carol. I want to say Carol King worked there. It was like a housing. I think they housed like offices and studios. And it's on 1619 Broadway on 49th Street in New York City. Um, it was built in 1931. I'm just reading Wikipedia information live here. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Famous for housing, music industry offices, and studios where some of the most popular American songs were written. Is considered to have been the center of the American music industry that dominated the pop charts in the early 60s. Okay, so here's Carol King. Just a, a quick description from Carol King. She says, Every day we squeezed into our respective cubby holes with just enough room for a piano, a bench, and maybe a chair for the lyricist if you were lucky. You'd sit there and write, and you could hear someone in the next cubby hole composing a song exactly like yours. The pressure in the Brill building was really terrific. Because Donnie Kirshner would play one songwriter against another. He'd say, we need a new smash hit. And we'd all go back and write a song. And the next day, we'd each audition for Bobby V's producer. So that's kind of an idea of, they're basically almost like an assembly line of songwriting or something like that. Yeah, some of the famous songwriters associated with it, Burke Bacharach, Burt Bacharach, sorry. Neil Diamond, Tony Orlando, David Gates from Bread. Carol King, Paul Simon, Neil Sedaka, Phil Spector, and a bunch of other notable people, but less famous. Wow. Can't believe I never heard of that till now. Here you go. I'm We're so all learning ignorant. new things. <laughs> all right, how about another track? What you got? Well, we're not going to play track two, so I'm going to flip it to side B and play A Man Will Be a Man. I love this song. <laughs> Sorry, I was wrong. Baby, come back home. 
biggest fool Cause I broke all the rules And played With my happiness My ego Just listening back to that now, I was noticing how cool the piano is on that track. And unless I'm mistaken, that's also Isaac Hayes. I'm pretty sure he played all the piano on his recordings. That was his main instrument. It's just so good. Dang. He's writing, he's arranging all of those string sections, all of the instruments. He wrote the whole song. He's doing the vocals and just killing it on the piano. For some reason, for the first time, maybe in my life when I was listening to that, I was sort of hearing like a show tune vibe. Does that even make sense to either of you? <laughs> well, he was definitely a fan of some very smooth kind of big band pop songwriters, specifically Burt Bacharach, who we just mentioned. And a lot of his earlier work before this, over the last four years, he did a lot of deconstructing and reinterpreting of these big, uh, heavy string-laden pop songs. Dionne Warwick, Burt Bacharach, that kind of stuff. That was the music he was really interested in and was trying to fuse that with the Memphis soul vibe, but still create something that was, you know, uniquely his own. Yeah. Yeah. I never really noticed that influence till just now when we were listening to it. And I was like, totally. This is got, yeah, kind of got that vibe. Mm -hmm. I want to say the last song has a little bit of that going on as well. The last song on this album, the, the not the last song we listened to, but the final song sequenced right. on the album. I feel like in listening sometimes with Isaac Hayes, I feel like lyrically in some cases they haven't necessarily aged well. Mm -hmm. I don't know if either of you have noticed that it seems a little patriarchal. Oh, for sure. And it's, you know, he's got a lot of songs where he's desperately trying to convince women to have sex with him, which is that whole vibe has definitely not aged well. Um, I've personally not heard of any like sexual misconduct allegations that have come out against him. That definitely does not mean that they don't exist or didn't happen, but I've not heard any stories about Isaac Hayes being a particularly bad guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a product of its time. I think definitely he, he was not unique in his lyrical approach by any yeah. means. <laughs> yeah. It's not different at all from, like classic rock of that area with mm -hmm. like all the yeah yeah that's very masculine true messages yeah mm -hmm. yeah sometimes it's a it can get a little cringy mm. when it gets that's into true. that territory is it time for your axe to grind mm, no not quite yet <laughs> oh so one of the reasons i picked this album is because this is probably the easiest isaac hayes album to find at least from his classic period enough people know about hot buttered soul you know it's been on enough top 10 lists that people usually pick that one up pretty quick obviously the shaft soundtrack always sells and then some of the other soundtrack work is a little more sought after but this record just you see it everywhere and i've seen some reviewers kind of brush it aside saying it's just too formulaic he'd already done everything on this album before which is kind of true but i feel like there's often not enough room in the world of music critics for someone working within their formula, but doing it from a place of mastery, you know, yeah. he invented this style and he's been perfecting it for four years. He's been touring these musicians all over the world and pumping out records and they're all doing this perfectly. Now, you know, they can play this music in their sleep 
And I think that's actually what the standout of this is. This is also the first record that's not a soundtrack where he wrote all of the material on it. Most of his other records were mostly covers, even though they were so changed and distorted that they were basically his own song at that point. But this is the first time where him and his band were completely behind the wheel on this. And I think it's a standout of his career. I think it's a great album. Yeah, I I enjoyed listening to it. (laughs) I think I liked the first song and the last song the most. I felt a little underwhelmed some in some places in the middle but it was bookended with some of my favorite moments so yeah Isaac Hayes is definitely one of those artists where I don't know if he has a perfect album I mean you could argue hot buttered soul is but I'm I'm not as much of a fan of his extended like talking sections Mm -hmm. but we talked about before how there can be great artists who are super important where you still just kind of don't like maybe one song on every album or you only like one or two songs. This album comes close for me, though. I can still listen to it all the way through most of the time without skipping some parts. But, uh... <laughs> the intro of the second track is, what is it, about a minute, two minutes? of it's, It reminded me of on like hip-hop albums when there'd be oh, skits and sketches. Totally. And I was kind of thinking, like, I wonder how much of that is an influence of Isaac Hayes doing these like practically sketches on this album. Yeah, because I mean, he was famous for that. He, you know, he had the monologues on just about every record because that was one of his trademarks. Yeah. And judging by the amount of times he's been sampled, I feel like we can pretty easily confirm the level of influence he had on hip hop. So that, that's got to have something to do with it as well. Absolutely. I mentioned a couple times how the style of music he was doing was so revolutionary. And I love the story of how it kind of accidentally came about. Because it was a it was a weird series of coincidences that gave us the actual music of Isaac Hayes outside of the songwriting he did for other people. Do go on. And I will relay that story quickly for you guys now. I'm intrigued. So he's working for Stax Records. He put out his first album in 1967. And it pretty much flopped. And it, when you go back and listen to it, it has some interesting ideas in there, but you can tell he's just, it's not really fleshed out. He wasn't sure what he was trying to do. It didn't work. And he basically decided, well, I'm a songwriter. I'm really good at that. Apparently not destined to be a star and that's fine. I'm done. The other notable thing that happened in 1967 is that is the year that Otis Redding died in a plane crash, who was by far Stax Records highest selling artist. And Atlantic Records was closely associated with Stax because they were the ones that were distributing all of their records to a wider audience. When Stax got started, they started having all these hits, but they just didn't have the infrastructure to literally get their records to the rest of the world. Atlantic helped them out a lot in doing that. However, Atlantic also put a clause in this distribution deal that Stax was not aware of where after a certain amount of time, Atlantic then owned all the rights to Stax's entire back catalog. Classic corporate move. I love it. And I forget when that came into effect. I think like 68. Yeah. So basically, their biggest star is dead, and now they can't even make money off of any of the records they've done up to this point. So So what did they do? (laughs) The vice president of Stax decided that they were going to push one last ditch effort to keep this label alive and 
they basically called in every artist that they had on the label and told him, we are going to make something like 28 records this as soon as possible. <laughs> like everybody get in here, put out a record. We are just going to invent a back catalog this summer. And they marketed it heavily. They put out these records. There was a lot of good material. And one of the things that happened is Isaac Hayes approached the owners of Stacks and basically just told them, if everybody's doing a record, can I just go do a record? And they were like, yes, everybody should do a record. <laughs> go do whatever you want. Like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want complete creative control. I want to be able to do whatever I want on this record. Like, literally, we don't care. Why aren't you making the record right now? <laughs> <laughs> so he he took that opportunity as like, you know, this is our last ditch effort. I can do whatever I want and just take a risk because I might be looking for a new job in a few months anyways. So he went and made Hot Buttered Soul, a record that people would have thought would have been commercially impossible because it's got these really long songs on it. It's heavily orchestrated. It's not just, you know, hook, verse, hook, verse, like the rest of the songs that they're trying to do. But Hot Buttered Soul became the biggest selling record of that entire push. And I think of like the entire Stacks history, actually. Wow. And just, it was so successful that it completely changed the music industry overnight. People realized like, oh, there's a market for something totally different. And we, we can make all these other songs. And maybe if we let some of these artists do whatever they want, they'll actually make hits, <laughs> you know? Weird. Let artists create. Mm -hmm. Who'd have thunk? And yeah, that, uh, that extended rhythm, that locking the groove for 15 plus minutes, that having the heavy string sections and riffing on the same thing for five minutes and then changing it up are all key elements in the disco movement because that was all about let's have this song go on forever so people can just keep doing drugs and dancing all night and isaac hayes was one of the first people to prove that you could be successful at doing, doing this drugs and dancing all yeah. night <laughs> legendary formula exactly so this ushered in like the second wave of stacks where they were doing a funkier sound they were on top of the world again making money and pushing the art form forwards, mostly thanks to Isaac Hayes. And they had that huge festival, which Isaac Hayes was like one of the headliners, right? Yeah, Watt Stacks. Watt Stacks, yeah. yep. The, uh, the videos and audio from that is amazing. Yeah. This set's so good. I think that was, uh, that was like pretty close to around this time. 72. Yeah, so he was like working on this album almost when that concert happened. Should we hear another song? Let's hear another song. All right, let's just play the next track on side B. This one's called The Feeling Keeps On Coming. First time I saw you 
you stop it i was getting in the groove you i was getting too in the groove that's why i needed to stop it it's getting a little too hot and heavy in here with the air conditioner off yeah lit some (laughs) candles trying to keep the vibes going yeah it's not even a joke it was like you guys are waiting for me to make a joke but no there's literally candle burning in this room right now yeah i'm telling a fact (laughs) just the facts i love the percussion on this whole album but especially that track the combined drums and hand drums are just, oh, they're so good. Let's keep that groove rolling the whole record. Yeah. yeah, even in the tracks that I wasn't feeling as much, I couldn't deny the production values on this one. Mm-hmm. I love the sound that he gets, too. It's extra reverby. You can tell that probably all these musicians were playing at the same time. There's no overdubbing going on. It's just got that raw kind of dirty memphis soul sound to it so good love it jeremy you're usually the one to comment on uh, audio quality and production as our resident engineer for this podcast (laughs) oh you had to bring it up (laughs) thank you sean i will say in regards to the production i wasn't mad at the strings like i often am at strings and songs interesting is there any reasons you can come up with as to what made these different? Uh, I think they're sparser and stabbier, less yeah. like floral, orchestral. Though at times they do that a little, but I think it's a tasteful amount of times. It's like it's never for the whole song either. He yeah. really understands the use of space. Yeah. And silence. It's yes. what makes these songs amazing. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot. If you actually listen, there's a lot of different instruments and parts going on. But yeah, they're so well spaced that it doesn't feel like cluttered or like wall of sound beetles or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, we talked about how he's famous for these super long songs that when you're not paying attention, it can be like, wait a minute, like, is this really still the same track? But at the <laughs> same time, it, it stays pretty interesting compared to a lot of other music of that same length. You know, the, the groove is so good that you just don't mind that it keeps happening. And then he has enough differentiation between different sections with the, the strings like we talked about and subtly changing up the rhythm that it, it holds my interest at least. You said this was 1973, right? Yes. I don't, I don't know if we actually established that in the episode, but 73. So that's four years after hot buttered soul. Mm-hmm. And wow. To think the strings sound pretty similar to what they sounded on hot buttered soul in 1969. And, 
I never really thought about it, but those must have sounded unreal at that time. Like the exactly the, the production values, and I feel like I'm not hearing a great deal of development and how he's recording them in that four years. But he had them right to begin with, so if it ain't broke, don't try to fix it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's incredible. If I really think about the context of the time, he was really ahead of the game on making strings work. Yeah. And, you know, when he went full up-tempo disco later on, he still was having some extremely influential hits. His song Zeke the Freak is, you know, one of the <laughs> most sampled songs in house music. Um, so he's been a big influence on a lot of different genres. So we'll touch a little bit on the things Isaac Hayes is most famous for later in life. Uh, the two things he's most known for is in that time period is being a Scientologist and being a reoccurring character on the show South Park, which I personally do not like. I don't know how y'all feel about South Park. <laughs> I loved it when I was 13. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, being offensive is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck all the squares. I think I turned yeah. 16 and gained like some empathy for human beings and kind of lost interest in South Park after that. I just got so annoyed at how preachy it is. You know, when you're young and impressionable, like, wow, these guys are so smart and they have such interesting ideas. And yeah, it's it's cool to shake things up. And you're like, actually, they just seem like really kind of whiny babies we're just like trying to piss people off just for the sake of doing it and also this isn't really that funny anyways so like there's nothing <laughs> redeeming about this yeah anyways i watched it in the early years when it was first on because i was like 17 or so and after a couple years i was more or less done with it yeah I feel, although i feel like that's before it became the commentary preachy show that it it became a few years in. Mm. We don't need to analyze it that much, though. <laughs> I mean, we're going to break down South Park into various eras. <laughs> what I Rank really them want from worst to extra worst. What I really want to know is: Are we going to talk about some of his other acting turns, especially the 1996 horror classic Uncle Sam? What? <laughs> I didn't know about there, this. Oh, it, it was uh, the cover of the VHS was probably the most noteworthy thing about this film because it was like a hologram where if you it was a picture of Uncle Sam, you know, like the I want you. But then if you uh, if you moved and turned it, then it said dead. I, Uncle Sam wants you dead. Classic. <laughs> and Whoa. that's a hologram, right? When it does something like that. You turn also it. relevant. No, that's a uh, uh, lenticular, right? Is, is that what it is? Holographic. Well, holographic oh. is when the like image pops out, right? Yeah. And it has like three dimensions. Yeah, this one changed when you when you. I believe I believe that's called lenticular. Okay. I know the thing you're talking about either way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think we've all figured it out at this point either way. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I've I've seen the movie though. Isaac Hayes is in the movie. And that's about all I remember <laughs> about the movie. <laughs> He's had a surprising amount of film cameos. He was in uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. All right. Yeah, he was. You was. guys remember that he was in there? Yeah. <laughs> Dave Chappelle and Isaac Hayes were in that movie. Mm-hmm. Weird. Yeah. He's Yeah, he's been in a fair amount of movies, at least like 10 different movies, usually in, you know, bit parts. So it, that brings me back. In doing research for this episode, 
I was starting to think, you know, like, why, why did he do South Park? Judging by everything he'd accomplished before this, one of the most respected, successful musicians of all time. Why South Park? Especially because he was on there from day one. You know, they, they signed him up before the show had even launched. So it's not like you could say, like, he just saw it and was a fan and wanted to be a part of it. And doing some research on him, the picture kind of started to come together a little bit. He was a very successful musician and made a lot of money, but he also spent really, really big. You can, I believe, still see his gold-plated Cadillac in the Stax, Muse- Stax Museum of Soul. <laughs> Beautiful. And also, Stax went under because of bankruptcy and mismanagement. And from what I understand, that extended through a lot of the musicians. They had a weird relationship with some local banks that would just hand out loans, no questions asked. And a lot of the people involved with the label got really used to just pulling out absurd amounts of money until they were, in Isaac Hayes' case, $6 million in debt by the end of the 70s. Oof. Which, supposedly, he came back from that and got out of debt again, but it doesn't seem like he ever hit nearly the same level of success. And he's always been definitely a workaholic. We were talking about, you know, he wrote a million songs. He pumped out seven records in four years. 18 kids. Yeah. 19, 23. (laughs) Exactly. That, That never ended. If you look at his whole career, he was putting out albums his entire life. He was always getting involved with different organizations. He did a lot of humanitarian work. He was named the honorary king of Ghana for how much humanitarian work he was doing in the country of Ghana wow. in the 90s. So it kind of just makes sense that he just pretty much said yes to anything he could, partly because he was a workaholic, partly because he definitely needed the money. When did South Park start? Early, mid-90s, something like that? I think that it aired on Comedy Central in 1997. I, I okay. think that the, the Christmas special might have been that it started it might have been the year before 96 97 yeah from what i can tell he was definitely not the most financially stable at this point so he was just taking whatever work he could get and i found a short interview clip from around that time period with matt and trey and they were asked about how they got isaac hayes to be a part of it and it was so infuriating i sent you guys both the link i don't know if either one of you watched it i watched it yeah. They sound really they sound really uh, progressive in that interview. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. They they basically said that the whole point of Chef is they wanted it to be the like, most stereotypical black man. So they just wanted to hire who they thought were the most stereotypical 70s black soul artists. And they said the top two people on their list were Isaac Hayes and Barry White. They contacted Isaac Hayes first and he said yes. So that's why he was on the show. And then when they pitched the character to him, they they were like, "Yeah, we just you're, you're a total stereotype. You're the chef and you make lunch and you sing songs about dumb stuff. And he's like, okay, whatever. And then, and then they dropped this nugget talking about how they really wanted to do the voice of chef. And it was just so unfair that the network executives wouldn't let them voice a black character because that's just stupid. Yeah. Now that part like, really uh, struck me uh, because I, I feel like, you know, that's been a, a resurfacing conversation of late Mm-hmm. you know, 20 plus years later, but. And, and even in the interview, they were like aware of why people considered that to be a bad thing. And they're still like, no, that's stupid. We should be allowed to do whatever we want. No censorship ever. Controversial. <laughs> if we want to do basically blackface, that should be our right as white Americans. <laughs> yeah. That's the vibe I got. I mean, those weren't their exact words, but 
you know, that was basically what they were saying. <laughs> I'll never enjoy basketball the same way again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm or, so or sorry Gazzo. to take that away from you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they infamously killed off the chef character after they did an episode exposing the eccentricities of Scientology. And, you know, the general statement was that Isaac Hayes was unhappy with being a part of that and his fellow Scientologist convinced him to quit the show. Yeah. Which that was kind of the statement at first. He at one point, I believe, tried to sue them over religious discrimination. And then their response was, well, he didn't say anything when we were bashing literally every other religion. So he's just too sensitive. Yeah. We're the ones being attacked. Yeah. I, I remember them saying something along those lines and then they yeah brutally killed the character off. Yeah. And then like half-heartedly dedicated an episode to him when he died two years later. Yeah. Cause he died in 2009, 2008, 2000. 2008 and quit South Park in 2006. So it was, yeah, like two years later. Oops. Yeah. We still love him, though, even though we've been just bad-mouthing him for the last two years straight after he quit for very good reasons. So, yeah, the the story, the soundbite you always hear is Scientologists convinced him to quit because he wasn't happy with the episode, and that was it. But Isaac Hayes has also made multiple statements that Matt and Trey were just never nice to him. They weren't fun to work with and they didn't pay him enough, which doesn't seem that unlikely based on what little I know about them. Yeah, I think that's very possible. So you think that he took he just took on the the job as another means for work later on in life? He he just that collecting a paycheck because he needed it. And I'm sure he, you know, he enjoyed the resurgence in popularity from it. He said, you know, he gained a lot of new fans from it. And he really appreciated that. You see him talk about that in interviews where he's kind of living that up. But he never talks positively about the process of making South Park. He never talks about it being really fun and loving the show or anything about that. It's just like, yeah, I love that people love me for this thing that I do to get a paycheck. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, it's so unfortunate that... South Park, I think, kind of paved the way for him to be viewed as this just kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a lot of things that are, you know, inherently humorous about him. He's always been a very flamboyant musician. The The cover of this record, it's three different pictures of him wearing a vest that is literally just a series of gold chains. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like I said, he drove a gold-plated Cadillac. Like, he wanted to be the center of attention. He wanted to be this larger-than-life goofball and you know he was a very funny guy he's always cracking jokes and interviews and having a good time but it's still just it's not the same you're not laughing with him anymore on south park and there's there's some later interviews too where once he started struggling post having multiple strokes and couldn't perform as well wasn't as sharp in interviews people were just making fun of him for it you can find some of the old like final interviews of his life and it's, it's just so cringy to watch because they're like, oh, this is the guy that we're bringing on as a joke to make fun of. And that's, you know, that's his entire role at this point. And then he passes away and people just know him as chef. I hate that so much. We're reclaiming the legacy of Isaac Hayes here. That's right. Listen to the records. They're all good. There's no, okay, so there's no perfect Isaac Hayes record, but there's also no completely bad Isaac Hayes record. I've even listened to like some of the tracks from his 80s, 90s records, and it's still really interesting. 
He's a brilliant musician, incredibly creative force in music history. And style icon. Don't forget that. (laughs) I was reading that his shaved head at the time, people like thought it was kind of strange. And like he said at the time, it was very popular to straighten your hair for black men in that era. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't want to do that work anymore. And he shaved it off and he liked how it felt. And he became like an icon for that look. And popularized yep. it to a certain degree from how they made it sound. Yeah, definitely. There was a a big movement with like Sam Cooke and James Brown when they first started wearing like more of a natural Afro look, uh, because that wasn't a thing that black musicians ever did, because their whole thing was trying to present as passing as they could for their white audience, and it was guys like Isaac Hayes and Sam Cooke and Otis Redding that were trying to claim a you know more stronger afrocentric image like we are making music for us regardless of what the white people in control want us to do and then they started making money doing it and revolutionized entire genre of artists heard extremely important musician it's also really important that someone of his stature got involved with making soundtracks for the black exploitation films that were coming out because that was some of the first times when black filmmakers were leading the charge on making these hit movies with an all black cast. And it's just so cool that he was like, all right, let's make some music for it. I'm all, I'm all in on this. Awesome. Thank you for bringing our attention to this important artist. Definitely. Peter, you got any recommendations of records for other people? Well, I was just thinking about that, Sean, and these two artists might be pushing into the CD era too much, but maybe you'll have a little insight on into whether you can find some of their early records still, you know, rather cheap. Uh, one that comes to mind is Jody Watley. Do you know Jody Watley at all, Sean? I've seen her records around a little bit, but I don't know if I've ever actually listened to it. She was still around when I was first starting to get into R&B and hip-hop around 1993, 1994. She was putting stuff out then. And the other one... And I haven't listened to her in a long time, so maybe she's not quite on that vibe. I think her first albums came out in the mid to late 80s, so you might still find them on LP. But another one who I'd say first records probably came out in 87, 88 is Keith Sweat. Okay. Yeah, you see you see Jody's first two records, self-titled beginnings, and the third one, Larger Than Life, pretty regularly. And you see the first one or two Keith Sweat records for pretty cheap early on. Yeah, okay, so they're out there. Yeah, and he he definitely influenced that era of that kind of like R&B, New Jack Swing type of movement that was happening in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm-hmm. We mentioned him already on the show, but Barry White, I think, is another guy that is super important and most people have forgotten about. And then... And you find those records all over. So cheap. And the yeah. Love Unlimited Orchestra is really cool, too. The girl group that he produced for, that's another guy who was extremely prolific, extremely talented songwriter has a million good songs. Barry White's also considered a novelty by many people, I think. Definitely. And then, you know, if we're going to talk about legendary, important black crooners, we got to mention Teddy Pendergrass and Luther Vandross too. Oh, absolutely. So there you go. That's, that's plenty of material for people to dive in on if they are new to that world of music. Well, I think we've done what we need to do here. If y'all feel good about it. 
I feel good about it. Should we go out on the final track? Yes. I'm going to make it without you. So this one's 11 minutes long. I was thinking maybe we would cut out most of the spoken word intro and just get right into the meat of the song. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, cool. Thanks for listening. I'm Sean Hartman. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And you might call me Peter Cook. You might. Here's the song. We absolutely appreciate you tuning in to this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar, however you found us. But did you know you can listen to us on Spotify? That's right. We are available on your favorite streaming platform. You can just search I'd Buy That for a Dollar and all of our episodes are available. If it's in your means, check us out on Spotify. Thanks again. And I have it all to myself All my prayers were answered And my greatest wish has come true That's why you hear me say I'm gonna make it I can see